Welcome back to the Florida History Podcast. I'm Carter Krishnire. This week we have our third and final episode for now uh, in our series with Dr. Angela Zombeck, who is an associate professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. And we will actually have her back later in the year uh, to discuss uh, uh, her, her newest work. But uh, today we're going to focus on Key West in the Civil War, which is uh, something uh, she has written extensively about and is a really interesting topic, not only because of uh, Key West's being in the late uh, 19th century, probably the most important city in Florida, but the critical nature it played in Union war planning, especially when you consider that the Union war plan developed by General Winfield Scott revolved around a naval blockade and Key West and the forts in Key West, Fort Jefferson and Fort Taylor, which we've discussed on a previous episode with her, were critical in that war planning. So Key West plays a central role in the Civil War, as we've covered on previous podcasts. Uh, And Fort Taylor, the Union taking control of Fort Taylor is a seminal moment uh, for Key West residents. But um, the loyalty of Key West residents wasn't that clear cut, right? There were uh, probably more Confederate sympathizers in the town and so much that happened um, in 1861 and 1862 at the start of the war. So uh, walk us through that. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely on point there about the loyalties of Key West residents. It's a really interesting case study. And really the first thing that I want to say about Key West is it is ignored because nothing happened there. Battle wise. But I think it's important to look at the island from the perspective of the people who were living through the Civil War and that they did not know that nothing was going to happen. So as Southern states started seceding and of course the coastal fortifications in the United States are all controlled by the federal government and so they have targets on them. And so there's a real sense in Key West that Fort Taylor might be taken and that Fort Jefferson might be taken. So in Key West's case, General John Brannan, who was, or actually was Captain John Brannan at that point, excuse me, of of the 1st U.S. Artillery, he takes it upon himself because he hasn't gotten orders from Washington to secure Fort Taylor shortly after Florida seceded on January 10th, 1861. He takes the fort with his 44 artillerists He's got about 60 engineers under the command of Captain E.B. Hunt with him. And he realizes that given the fact that a lot of residents in Key West had Southern sympathies, particularly as related to slavery, he's very anxious that there might be some kind of internal movement that would try to wrest the fort from him. And so he almost immediately calls for reinforcements. After Confederate troops fired on Fort Sumter as kind of an exclamation point on how important Key West was to the United States, Abraham Lincoln actually issues his first authorization of the suspension of habeas corpus 
on May 10th, 1861, and it applies directly to Key West. So this is one of the first places that really comes under martial law to quell dissent. And it's a really interesting study to look at because, of course, on the island, when we think of Southern slavery, it doesn't operate on Key West the way that it operates elsewhere in the form of plantation agriculture. So this is really a setting where there's urban slave labor, and a big part of that was actually the United States Army renting slaves for about $20 a month is what they would pay the masters to construct the fortifications, both Fort Taylor and Fort Jefferson. So uh, this was done, this is not a written agreement, and this becomes a huge sticking point. Um, for Key West slave owners, this is done by gentlemen's agreement that these slaves are going to work for a period of time. They're particularly working during the summer months when white northern skilled laborers cannot withstand the climate and the threat of yellow fever. And so union officials um, in 1861 actually really anger a lot of slave owners by taking those slaves according to this gentleman's agreement and sending them up to Pensacola to work on the forts up there. And my take on that is really usurping, first, usurping the power of the slaveholders, their ability to control their slaves. But it's a pendulum. So when that happens, um, by that point in 1861, um, Major William French has come over from Texas, and he has actually um, outranked Brandon. So he's in command at QS at that point. And he essentially kind of apologizes to the slave owners who union officials had done that to and guarantees them that they're not going to move the slaves anywhere without a written agreement. So I think that's a really interesting thing to keep in mind when we talk about the Civil War and we talk about it in relationship to slavery is that several of the coastal fortifications throughout the nation, but particularly in the South, were largely constructed by um, the federal government's use of slave labor. So at Key West, we see this go down. If we look at the start of the war, there are, in January 1861, 42 slaves enrolled on um, working on Fort Taylor. By the time we get to January of 1863, there's only seven. And of course, at that point, um, the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect. And it still applies to Key West, despite the fact that the Union never relinquished control of it. Other areas of the South that the Union controlled were exempt from the proclamation. And the Lincoln administration's decision to make the proclamation apply to Key West, again, really angers slaveholders. But then you can see kind of how federal officials' views on slavery changed as the war progressed in looking at that. And as we've talked about on previous podcasts, Pensacola, the battle of the forts of Pensacola, Fort Baracus, and, and Fort Pickens were huge centerpieces of uh, what happened in Florida during the Civil War. So no, no coincidence that um, that action was taken. Uh, in Key West itself, uh, you've written extensively about this. There's a yellow fever outbreak in 1861. So how, how did that affect the city as it's under uh, uh, martial law and wartime measures? There's a couple impacts. 
of the yellow fever epidemic and there's one in 62 and there's one in 64 and I think we can talk about this in two ways first is um, in the 1862 epidemic kind of building off of the point that we were just talking about in regards to um, the use of slave labor there's a transition point there so by 1862, the Lincoln administration, um, through orders, including the Confiscation Acts, particularly the Second Confiscation Act, has authorized blacks to work for pay and also prohibited union military officials from returning slaves to their masters. So what happens during the epidemic of 1862 is the commanding officers need labor. And they start turning to black labor to work in the hospitals, to go on burial details. And these, and it's ambiguous at this point because we're not at the point of the Emancipation Proclamation, but there's some indication that given the Confiscation Acts, that slaves are going to be emancipated, but their status is still in limbo, but they're getting paid. And it, it kind of creates a ruckus because there are engineers who are working for Walter McFarland at Fort Taylor who were not getting paid. And so some of those guys just refused to work. So on one level, the epidemic kind of creates this tension about what is happening to slavery and what is the future of slavery going to be. And it looks like at that point, even the writing is on the wall that slavery is gonna end. The other point of this is obviously death. And the thing that I think is really interesting um, to look at in the case of Key West is at this point, the garrison um, constitutes some members of the regular army still, um, usually artillery units, but also volunteers. So the volunteers are members of the 47th Pennsylvania, the 90th New York, and the 91st New York. And what's really significant about those three units, I think, is that unlike other union volunteer units, who end up occupying cities, these guys did not see combat first. And so there's a huge discussion about, you know, in Civil War scholarship about, you know, how did Union volunteers wrap their minds around garrison duty? They, the standard narrative is they didn't, they didn't appreciate it, they didn't like it. There's this idea that dying, you know, in battle is glorious and there's sacrifice and whatnot. But on garrison duty, it's like, there's a question mark because you're not specifically facing an enemy on a battlefield. And so these volunteers who are there have to grapple with the loss of life, the loss of their comrades in an area where they haven't fought. And from the research that I've done, these guys are okay with that. They're actually in some cases thankful to be at Key West because in combat, they're you know, potentially going to get shot and die. There's some, um, the 47th Pennsylvania goes and campaigns in South Carolina for a while and comes back to Key West and is happy about that decision that General Brandon ordered them back because they see it as a life-saving measure. But still, it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around dying from this terrible disease. And so that happens um, in 1862. In 1864, um, the garrison is shifted and most of the white troops are gone. And so now we have um, a regiment of the second United States Colored Troops that's coming into Garrison Key West. And the philosophy was that 
black men can better handle a tropical climate than white men. And in 1864, that epidemic really kind of belies that point. And there are significant casualties in that regiment as well. So as the war goes on, uh, what was it like for Key West residents, uh, 1863, 1864, uh, this war, uh, and you mentioned the yellow fever outbreak in 1864, this war is not um, is not the quick uh, war that uh, actually, quite frankly, people on both sides, some people on both sides thought it would be. It becomes a war of attrition. And uh, how did that affect the town? I think the, one of the biggest impacts is the number of refugees that show up, um, especially as we get into 1863, 1864. And so the United States Army has to essentially decide how to deal with them. And they do a, a pretty good job of caring for the refugees. And these are both white and black refugees, mostly from Florida. Um, they're getting onto blockade vessels. Some of them are getting to Key West, you know, by other means if they have their own sailing vessels. But um, the U.S. Army decides that they need to house them and they need to employ them. And so there are several white and black refugees that work at Fort Taylor. They work on construction. They work building fortifications, cleaning the island. So that's one impact is this influx of refugees. The other is the relationship between the occupying troops and the civilians. And there's a big question of essentially who runs what. So as long as the army is there, the island is obviously under military occupation, but there is a civilian government that gets established. Um, the first go of it actually comes pretty early at the end of 1861, and there are kind of variations on that as the war goes on. But there's, there's always interplay between the commanding officer at Key West and the civilian government as far as what powers they can exert. And a lot of the secessionists are, they chafe at that. They don't like that, you know, William Ward's Key of the Gulf newspaper gets shut down in 1861 and an army newspaper gets established by one of the New York regiments. They don't like the presence of Union troops, although there are some pretty close relationships that are formed between some of the Union volunteers and the civilians. Civilians, particularly those who are Confederate sympathizers, are really unhappy in 1864 when the second United States Colored Troops comes in because they know that the status quo antebellum is gone. And so what the army does is it starts um, working with organizations like the National Freedmen's Relief Organization that's based out of New York to establish schools, not only for local blacks on the island, but also for members of the USCT. So there's a lot of change that, that happens throughout the war that civilians are, are dealing with. As the war comes to an end in 1865, is the transition uh, any easier uh, for Key West residents to reconstruction, to the reconstruction era, because they had been effectively under occupation since the beginning of the war? Or is it a similar story to some of the things we see in the rest of the state? It's, you know, I'd say it's, it's pretty similar in that Confederate sympathy will win out at various points relatively quickly. 
and specifically what I mean by that is that in the beginning of the war, um, there was one local secessionist by the name of Henry Mulrennan. And he ultimately ended up fleeing the island and going into the Tampa Bay area and um, starting a Confederate regiment, many of the members of which were from Key West. Their nickname was the Key West Avengers. And so he's essentially an unabashed um, Confederate sympathizer. Well, after the war, um, there's some continuity. So the troops are there. Um, The garrison is still largely black troops. Um, William Marvin um, is actually going to be the mayor of Key West in 1866. But then if we fast forward to 1868, we see Henry Mulrennan coming in as mayor. So there's some responsiveness to radical reconstruction, which was dominated by the Republican Party um, after the war in the United States Congress as far as enforcing the new status quo that was supposed to guarantee emancipated slaves' rights. But there's also a lot of pushback against that as well. So it's, I think, arguably a relatively similar story, with the exception being that, you know, the people who are living there have been, since the island's inception, used to having a garrison there. That was always the case. I mean, honestly, in the 19th century, Key West exists because of the federal government. There's really no other way to say that as far as the Customs House and the Naval Base and the Admiralty Court judging wrecking cases. So that presence is there. It's just the ability of civilians to actually digest it that changes with the war, I think. Last question. Uh, Stephen Mallory is the Secretary of the Navy uh, for the Confederate States of America. He's from Key West. He's famously from Key West. Uh, He's one of the first names we associate with Key West. Uh, Is his appointment in the Confederate government, uh, does it owe itself to the strategic importance of Key West and all of the things that you've discussed with us in in these uh, last couple episodes? You know, I don't I don't know that it directly. results from him being from Key West, but it certainly results from him really being an innovative thinker as far as naval strategy goes. I mean, he he honestly creates the Confederate Navy from nothing. So I think that he was well-versed in that area, and I think that might be kind of more of a reason um, that he becomes he gets appointed to that position in the Confederate government. Fantastic. It's been great having you on these last uh, couple episodes. And uh, uh, this is uh, incredible history. And, and quite honestly, uh, and, and, and actually, maybe we'll finish on this. Uh, so I, I, I lied. We had one more thing to discuss. Um, <laughs> Key West is such an underrated city historically that um, uh, the Civil War history, even when you think about the history of Key West, the Civil War history is often glossed over. And we talk about Spanish-American War and Hemingway and and Audubon, uh, but uh, it, it really is kind of um, like much of Florida, so underrated historically. So, you know, just a thought or two on that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, history, I guess, is everywhere at Key West. It's just that people don't think about it. 
I mean, Fort Taylor, for example, has the largest collection of Civil War artillery in the nation. You can go through the Martello Towers. I mean, there's so many opportunities to really understand the significance of the island. But I guess, you know, in the latter part of the 20th century and up until the modern day, there's been an emphasis on tourism too. But you can't help but wander around Key West and stumble into something that's going to educate you about the nation's past. And it's not just the Civil War era. It's, you know, it's going into the 20th century as well. So it's definitely there. It's definitely an underrated place um, as far as history goes. But the folks down there um, at the Key West Art and Historical Society and the other museums do an absolutely phenomenal job at telling that story for people who want to hear it. Thank you once again uh, for all three of these uh, episodes we've done together, and we're going to have you back on the show later in the year. Uh, Next week, Robert and I, Robert Bricciolato and I, will be launching a new season of the Florida History Podcast, or it might be in two weeks, but in in the next two weeks, uh, with a new topic and a new theme. So uh, we're going to uh, focus on a specific area of Florida history in this new season coming up. Uh, which will be probably about 10 or 12 episodes. Uh, So look forward to that uh, in a couple of weeks. And thank you once again for listening to the Florida History Podcast.